Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm an author but also director of the centre and today I am joined by a young writer of fantasy, Catherine Livesey, who has written a very exciting trilogy uh, about which we will hear more later. But first of all, let's say hello to Catherine and hear a little bit about your journey to being an author, Catherine. Hi. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, first and foremost. Uh, I love talking about fantasy books. So this is heaven as a conversation for me. Um, I write sort of cozy young adult fantasy adventure fiction It's the genre I have always loved. And when I started writing, it was what I felt was missing on my bookshelf. So I thought I best pick up a pen and and fill the gap myself. That is so often the the, the spur to being a writer, isn't it? It's 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 maybe you find one book in your genre and then 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 there's a nothing. And you think, well, I better go off and write something then. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about what the young Catherine was thinking when she was a teenager, looking at these bookshelves and how that then became, you know, the steps you took to being a writer. You were saying to me earlier that you also have a, a full-time job. So you're one of mm-hmm. one of the writers who do the two things uh, at the same time. Yeah. So I, had the idea for a long time that I wanted to be an author and for a while sort of throughout high school and college they didn't really get much further than this romanticized idea of sitting in a nice garden writing shed writing and looking at at chickens and that was what I wanted my life to be (laughs) um and it sort of grew from this romanticized idea into realizing that I loved spending my time writing and perhaps it was something worthwhile pursuing. It wasn't just something that should have stayed as a daydream. So I started to think of what I wanted to write, what I was reading at the time. Um, and I was reading sort of a lot of uh, Maggie Stiefvater and uh, Victoria Schwab in that sort of peak of young adult fiction that happened um so sort of six seven years ago now yeah end of 2000 exactly beginning of 2010 yeah exactly exactly that time um and a lot of what I was reading was incredible and really exciting there wasn't an awful lot of diversity or, or representations of different kinds of people in those books um and I was sort of coming to terms with who I was as a person realized I wasn't sort of a straight person and 
I didn't have that kind of representation to read. I didn't know where to find it, except for sort of the big coming out stories that, again, were having a sort of a popular um, moment in fiction at the time. Um, And I didn't want a coming out story. That's not what I wanted. I just wanted to see queer characters having a daily life and going up and doing fantasy stuff, having swords and having magic and going on adventures and it just being another part of them, like their hair colour. And I didn't see that, I didn't find it. And so I was really struggling to see myself in the books I was reading. And that's sort of what triggered this journey for me to take it seriously is that I thought, you know, if there's a if there's a teenager out there like me that needs this and I can write and I love writing, then it's my responsibility to bring that to other people who are also missing that representation in, in what they're reading. So it grew from it grew from there really. So I've put pen to paper properly for the first time when I was, I think, 19 in still in university. Um, and then I got the publishing deal when I was 26. So it took a little bit of time. That is not a little bit of time. That is very fast. And there'll be a lot of people out there. Who say, oh no, I've missed, <laughs> yeah. the boat. missed the boat. People can get published no. at all different decades of their life. So don't worry, folks, yeah. if you're if you're still <laughs> waiting for your deal. Um so let's go into the actual nature of the book, um, or the the first of the series, the Sisters mm-hmm. of Shadow. And um, was this your first fantasy book that you've written? Was this where you started or were there drafts in a drawer somewhere that haven't seen the light of day? So it was my first, um, but the way that it came about was such a slow process um, that I didn't really have chance to write other drafts and put them in drawers. Like my sole focus was the story, it always was. Um, and so I'd pick it up and put it down, pick it up and put it down over over the years um, until it grew into something that I actually wanted it to be. So there, there are previous drafts, many, many of the same yeah. story, but it was always this story um, that I wanted to tell. Um, yeah, basically. So tell us a little bit about the world of Sisters of Shadow so people get an idea of the story. So sort of as a sort of classic fantasy style, it is in a historical feeling environment, although it's deliberately impossible to pinpoint an exact um, time, but it's definitely not modern day and there's no technology um, in the world. There's a lot of nature and landscape and that's something that's that's really, really important to me. And so I wanted to make my characters walk through as many different landscapes that felt British, um, you know, you recognise sort of like Yorkshire Moors and Scottish mountains in there um, without having that sort of pinpoint location so that I play with those environments as much as I wanted to without having to stick to a um, a real map. Um, do you need anything? No, no. Tell, <laughs> I've lost I was my train actually of just, No, it's fine. I'm just actually going to come in on that. Which is um as as I you know as you know that a lot of the listeners to this are Tolkien fans and what you're yeah. doing is exactly what he did. So when yeah. you read Lord of the Rings, you know you're walking through an English landscape, uh, and you can see the exact trees and but you're mm-hmm. not. You're also in Middle Earth. So um, somehow by choosing something that's really real is the best thing for fantasy. It 
For sure. And and linked to that, I I grew up in Lancashire. And I know every county, I feel like in England, has some link to Tolkien or claims yeah. <laughs> some link to Tolkien. Um, but we have Stonyhurst College and there is the Tolkien trail around Stonyhurst College that really takes in the sort of Hobbiton style landscape of the rolling hills. Um, and that was one of the things that I've got really strong memories of growing up of that link of landscape and author being something that was really important. And it was not even deliberately an an influence I couldn't escape. It's something that was the most logical thing for me as a writer to include in, in how I wrote. And so tell us about your characters. You've got, um, I was going to say sisters. They're not. They're not actually literally sisters, but they're no. friends who are as close as two close sisters, Lily and Alice. Tell us a little bit about both of them. Yeah. So I liked to work with the idea of this two sides of the same coin idea. So these two people who are the antithesis of each other, and that's what makes their relationship so strong. So Lily is sort of the bright light. Um, positive character. She is happy where she is. She likes her life. Um, She doesn't really want to change where she is. She's got ambitions in her very small sort of country village. Um, She wants to be the first female business owner in her village. That's what she's aiming for. And that is her life. And she's thrilled with it. She doesn't need or want anything else. Um, And then her best friend, Alice, Um, is the exact opposite of that. So she is reclusive. She's angry. She's shy. She lives in a cabin up in the mountains in the woods, not necessarily out of choice, but because she's a bit of an outcast. The village are suspicious of her. They don't really like having her around. And Lily is really the only person that trusted her in the first place. And their relationship grew from being children who understood each other on a level that I think only children can understand each other. It doesn't matter if you've got interests in common or anything like that. It's that sort of instant soul connection and their friendship grew from that. And the story is pinned on the strength of that friendship through adversity. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, you go on from that, as you were mentioning, to look at different forms of relationships. So we get romantic relationships Mm -hmm. and then you get another set of pairings I don't think it's giving too much away is it I don't want to but anyway there's two more (laughs) they they kind of grow they realize or at least Lily realizes that Alice has grown their friendship has taken Alice to the point where she's able to make connections with other people shall we say yeah and that's where we get the uh the the same sex attraction love story and then a heterosexual one as well for mm-hmm. I won't see who does what because that you can find that <laughs> but yeah. it, you're I like the way that you're building up the, the different forms of love um so there's friendship love there's romantic love there's familial love there's mm-hmm. um and people are making these relationships so though there is a, like a parental relationship going on between um, there's a character called Jem who lives in a, a lighthouse who's adopted some children. He's a young kind of father to them. So, but it's not mm. his children. So there's people who assume nope. roles because um, you can be a father without actually being literally the father. You can be a sister mm-hmm. without literally being a sister. That's one of the things I took away from reading your story. Um Hopefully that was intentional. (laughs) It was, absolutely. And I think I really, really wanted to make sure there was 
all different kinds of that love represented as well. Because again, what I was reading was these books were so focused on this, the, you know, the character that you're following falls in love and it is that, that becomes the point of the story. That's what pushes the plot along so often with young adult books. So it was when I was first getting the idea and I, yeah. I wanted to have something deeper and sort of wider ranging than that to say, you know, if, if romantic love isn't your cup of tea, if that's not what you want, there is so many other kinds of connections and characters to connect to in these books that you, it doesn't, it's not just about romantic love as life isn't. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of Bella and Edward twilight breathless romance has its place. You know, there are, yeah. But uh, yeah, it can be also a bit, mm. bit of a a trap. Mm. Uh, yes, definitely. So um, I was. There's lots to talk about in terms of uh, the the books and the series and how it unfolds. You might want to think about what teasers you can give to where it goes after the first part. But I was interested in the way you saw magic because magic seemed to me. Um, Everybody who has fantasy that includes magic needs like a magic economy, a magic budget. How much mm-hmm. planning did you put into your magic? And what kind of magic is it? Is it a finite resource? Is it wave your wand and it just comes? How did you think about this? Uh, or is it attached to something in the self, in the soul? It's sort of a combination of all of the things that you just mentioned. So for a long time, I didn't have... Um, a structure to it. I knew I wanted to include magic. I knew I wanted to build from it, but I didn't know what that looked like. So my first draft of the book simply just had magic peppered throughout it in a convenient way because I knew I wanted to include it. And then as I started to build that, that's when I started to bring in what it actually means to have magic in this world as a character. And one of the really key or two of the really key parts of this book is when two characters we find have this magic and they've got different kinds of magic. And that was really, really important to me because their type of magic reflects who they are Mm. as a person. um, And it pulls upon the resources of the earth. Um, So I I knew I really wanted to go for the sort of earth, wind, um, fire and water, elemental elemental magic. I knew I wanted from from the get-go, I knew I wanted it to be that because so much else of the book is based on landscape and nature and earth. That that was just the most logical thing. Like, of course, magic also pulls its strength from nature as as we do. Um, But having each of them sort of have that connection to a specific element meant that we could create some really interesting dynamics with sort of battles and fights because fire and water are opposites right so um it it meant that i could have a lot of fun with that magic as as a a really key part of the books but i was also conscious that i didn't want it to be a super epic deep fantasy where magic was everything and so i i wanted to keep it fairly pared back as well um and that once these characters gain their magic that isn't all they are as people they're still people and that was another sort of really strong focus for me. Yeah, I think what you were saying about how your magic had to be organic because you are, your context is an, a world of of nature is actually a very good pointer to anyone who's listening to this and is planning a book with magic in it. Mm. One way of answering that question is to step back and say, 
what kind of world are you working in? So if you're in some kind of steampunk um, place with lots of technology, you need to work out how the magic fits in there. It can't probably wouldn't be an organic ma- magic like yours. It would mm-hmm. be something else. Yeah. Or if it was more of a sci-fi universe, then again, you've got to think. Uh, my mind immediately went to Jedi Knights and things, but you know, you've got to think in another way. So mm-hmm. connecting your magic to its environment is really yeah. really important or is it just exactly. feels um, i don't know un- unconvincing um yeah so another thing that i wanted to ask you about is um the elements of this touch on um there's a lot of children in here who've been abandoned or damaged or, are, or, or there's even a sort of like child snatcher aspect going on with mm. um the sort of bad people in the book. Um, and there's one, there's a couple of characters in particular who are really damaged by it. I was thinking of the little character, Glenn, for example. Mm-hmm. What was your thinking about the sort of how you handle the violence, the torture aspect mm. of those, which people will see parallels to real life experiences of um, children who are uh, abused in other contexts. How do you think about that as you're writing it and the sort of care of the reader style that you're approaching? Yeah, so the first thing I'll say about this is the reason why that was an important path for me to go down is because when growing up and then when I was at university, I spent a lot of time studying fairy tales and I've always loved fairy tales. And the first moment you realise that fairy tales aren't Disney, they're dark Mm. like it's a real moment and for me it was anyway a real awakening I spent a lot of time going through old fairy tales and realizing how much sort of darkness there is in there and trauma there is and no one really touches on the impact that has on either the people reading it in the first place and the characters in those books um and initially when I started writing these books it it built from this sort of fairy tale um, idea of the band of witches sort of going across the moors and snatching children. That was a real strong initial element before I even had a full story. That was something that really interested me about this story. And so I knew that I had to have that element of darkness of those really like original fairy tales had, but I wanted to draw attention to the fact that you can't have that darkness without it impacting people. And I think fantasies are really interesting place to play with those emotions because people read books or I read fantasy books to escape it's a real escapism and so to be able to deal with difficult subjects in a space that feels safe for you to be able to explore those feelings felt like a really logical way to approach it for me Um, and Glenn's a really nice example because his story is bleak it's it's sad and as we go through you you go on this journey with him and he is sort of like the kid that you would have read about in a fairy tale that you know didn't end up having the best time you know he wasn't the cinderella in the story Mm. um and i really just wanted to look at what that would look like for a character like what what would they look like how would they deal with life and people around them how would they deal with love and and relationships had they have been through something so awful and yeah it was it's really it's a really interesting place to explore 
while still being able to be really sensitive to the fact that it is a book for young people and you know young people deal with trauma and it's a safe place for them to explore those emotions within the escapism of what is otherwise a, a fairly cozy fantasy series like I want it to be an escapist thing you know to pick up and disappear into so that's the motivation why I wanted to have that darkness in there I think I I interesting you use the word cozy I I think I, I think it feels quite um I think it feels quite dangerous the world maybe it's cozy <laughs> in the way that um there's an element of homeliness to it yes so there's a real sense of home and who makes your home and that's what yeah. you come back to. Maybe yeah. that's, yeah. But yeah. the world outside the home. Yeah, slightly less cosy. <laughs> yeah, slightly less cosy, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you've already mentioned uh, a little bit about, well, a lot about how, um, where you live and the places you've grown up, uh, Lancashire, Yorkshire, gets into, um, uh, Scotland, gets into the books. Do you have a particular way... Is it like all retrospect, you're sitting at home and you think about places or are you the kind of writer who goes out with your notebook, your phone or whatever it is, and records things thinking, I will use this in a book. So you're out there with your notebook noting down the sounds and the how the I, wind like, was. I wish I had that romantic way of, of working. Like I'd love to be that person, but I'm I'm just not. I like to be really present when I'm in a landscape. So I very rarely have notebooks or anything out. I'll take photos. I really like having a camera there um, to capture images and moods and feelings that I then collect together to then, if I am writing and I need to know how I want to describe a specific landscape, I will then pull up photos to help that process. Um, but I have always been really, really inspired by landscapes. I love being in really wild places. And so I take myself there and I, I just am there without thinking about whether I would use it or what I would use it for. And often landscapes creep into the books that I, I don't even remember putting them there. So for example, the lighthouse, I thought I'd just plucked that out of my imagination. And then a year after I'd really solidified it, I went back to a place in Cornwall that I'd been to a few years previously, saw the lighthouse and went, it, that's where it came from. I just, mm -hmm. I just forgotten or I'd stored it somewhere for use and, and pulled it out without realizing where I'd pulled it from. So it's a little bit less sort of conventional than it could be. Yeah. No, I think that's the idea of actually being really present when you're there mm. is, is I think really, really true to, um it makes the uh I suppose what it does is it gives the genuineness of an experience of a place it's like I often wonder about people at a concert who are all filming mm. concert rather than watching the concert or you know you are, are you actually present when you're filming I don't know discuss it's a one of those things isn't it yeah um if we're always going to look at it through a, a lens or a or a note mm. rather than actually remembering it um so you you devised this um, novel. You wrote this novel. Tell us a little bit about the experience of getting published. I've got to know you uh, because you're published by uh, Harper Collins. Yeah. Um, and so, tell us a little bit about the experience of being taken on by one of the big biggins. Yeah. So I, when I realised I needed to just stop 
editing and editing and editing and put it out in the world, which was a big enough step in the first place to to admit that it was as good as I was going to get it and that I needed um, someone else to be involved at that point. I started to reach out to agents primarily um, because I've read an awful lot that that is the the conventional way to go. If you want a big five publisher, you get an agent and then the agent gets the deal. So I spent a lot of time writing to agents and reaching out to them. Um, and then a couple of indie publishers as well, um, I reached out to. And over the course of a few months, I just, I wasn't getting anywhere, which is a really common story for yeah. a lot <laughs> of people. Um, I really, I was getting sort of rejection after rejection after rejection. And I saw on, so one more chapter is an imprint of HarperCollins that published me. And I'd followed them on Instagram because they published um, a comedy novel of one of my friends. So one of my writer friends I'd made through the the shared joy of, of writing. Um, she had recently been published by them. So I followed them on Instagram. I was just keeping an eye on things, being aware of them. And they posted um, a post asking for submissions for anyone who'd written anything that contained a lesbian storyline. And I was like, well, they haven't published any fantasy or young adult currently they're mainly publishing romance and crime but I have what they're asking for so I'll submit it and see what happens it'll probably be nothing and that was in the April and I sort of forgot about it carried on sending to agents carried on sending to indie publishers um and was sort of getting a little bit fatigued by the constant rejections and I wasn't doing much writing at the time um and I realized what I was really missing was the creative outlet and I needed to be creating in order to be able to deal with the rejections. Otherwise it was just relentless. So I think I woke up one day and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to send out anything else for a while. I've got this other idea. I'm going to start writing it and we'll see what happens. And the day after I made that decision, I got the email from the, the woman who became my editor to say that they wanted to sign a full trilogy um, at one more chapter and that they were making waves into the young adult fantasy genre. And that's where they that's where they wanted to go. So that's how it happened. And I, I never, I never got an agent in the end. <laughs> oh, that's a lovely story. The, the almost giving up. Well, not giving up the, it's the, it's the turning to something else. It, it's a very healthy. Um, it's very mm. healthy, really healthy because as you say, you get stuck in a loop. And I was talking to somebody just yesterday, at a speaking event I was doing who'd, who's who'd written a, a story based on a, her own autobiography uh and had been rejected and i was saying to her the thing is you're not it's not the story that's being rejected you mustn't take it personally mm. it's it's the not right for them now and you but it is hard not to think they don't like me you know <laughs> we all take it you know it's it's getting a bit of a carapace bit of a shell around you to protect mm -hmm. your creativity i think in the whole rejection things um so uh, just going on to this uh, issue about same-sex um, relationships, I had the impression, I don't know if this is right, that maybe there's more um, male same-sex relationships in novels than there are female. Am I right? Or is that uh, just... That's also the impression I've got. I don't have statistics, but it's it's always been a lot easier to find um yeah, male same-sex relationships for sure. I'm, I'm thinking of some of the big fantasy 
like the vampire series and things like that, the sort of Christine Finn and type mm-hmm. books. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm sure that they do that along the way. And it's just, that's just, but I can't think of a female one in those big series. Um, so have you come across good books for any any listener out there who's looking for these kind of stories? Perhaps they are um, same-sex attraction themselves and looking for these stories. Are there, other than your own books, of course, <laughs> are there any that you have found that, that treat this whole subject well? So I haven't read any fantasy ones, um, unfortunately. I'm sure they're out there. I just haven't I haven't found them yet. Um, but I have read some really, really good um female-led same-sex um stories of of sort of many genres. So um Infamous by Lex Crouch is a really, really good one. I really, really enjoyed that. She writes um Regency rom-coms with sort of a modern twist. Oh, um, right. Uh, that, that is really, really yeah. great. Yeah. Um, so that's I love all of her books. Um, I'm a really big fan of hers. Um, and that infamous is a really, really good one. Um, then there's the obvious sort of Sarah Waters always, uh, yeah. uh, or not always, yeah. but quite often um features same-sex um women in a mixture of ways, not always happily, um, unfortunately. And for a long time, that's what you had to deal with. If you wanted the representation, you had to also deal with the sad ending. And I'm happily part of, hopefully, a movement that that is no longer the case and and we're allowed nice, happy endings as well. Mm. Um, And then for um, modern sort of contemporary books, there is a writer called Alexandria Belfler who does... um, rom-coms again but in the contemporary sphere um and cat sebastian as well does historical um another historical sort of romantic comedy style so if anyone has any fantasy recommendations <laughs> you can throw them my uh, way as yeah well. okay <laughs> um i was uh interviewing just recently one of your um, fellow HarperCollins. Mm. authors called Jennifer Hayashi Dance, who's done um a fantasy very different really different from yours mm. it's it's like a prehistory kind but that does have um a, a variety of queer relationships in it um so you might enjoy that to mm. see what how she's handled mm-hmm. um handled that uh it starts with a in a, in a world where they don't have a he and she pronoun but it's like a, a sort of it starts as everybody being conceived as just people. And mm. so you don't know what the relationships are until there's a moment where they start to say they sort of like, like a fool, I suppose, and they become he and she. I think, oh, OK. So that's that, amazing. Yeah. It must be so hard to write that, though. I mean, I'll take my hat <laughs> off. If I was wearing a hat, I would take it off because, um, you know, it's a technical challenge, that one. So thank you for for sharing that with us. We have a... um two regular segments on mm-hmm. the podcast. Uh, one is just a fun one about where in all the fantasy world is the best place for something. You know, it can be, I just sort of dream them up. I think, oh, where's the best mm-hmm. library? Where's the best shop? You know, that sort of thing. And because the lighthouse is your, it's a kind of central image yeah. uh, in, in your story, I thought, well, what? let's think about lighthouses. And you, they don't have to be on land. They can be in space. You know, they can be anywhere that's like a, be- a beacon for for voyages. Um, where do you think in all the fantasy world has the best 
lighthouse. So has the best lighthouse or where I would put a lighthouse if I well, could? Well, I'm thinking of where's the best lighthouse, actually. You know, where would you like to go and be a lighthouse keeper? Oh, okay. So I was thinking, where would I put a lighthouse? Oh, well, tell I us that. I mean, we, we, are, we are allowed to reinterpret these things. <laughs> where would you like to put a lighthouse? Because I would put a lighthouse um, on Numenor pre-fall um, because I just think visually it's the most beautiful place. Um, I think there's a lot to be said negatively and positive about the Rings of Power, but the way that they created um, Numenor was incredible. So I'd put a lighthouse slap bang there. there. might well have been one because they're a seafaring nation. I exactly. I reckon there that's is why, one. Yeah. If you get so your mind, you know, if, you, if you stop the thing and, and sort of expand the screen, I I'm bet there sure is. there would be. Yeah. yeah. By the entrance yeah. to the harbour. Of course. There must yeah. be. Yeah. But actually on the, on sort of the Lord of the Rings um, world, that is actually one of the places where, I think it's the most amusing lighthouse because do you remember in the Peter Jackson um, Return of the King, the, the wonderful, wonderful beacons yes. um, scene where they, I mean, I think it's he's yeah. made a little line in the book into this mammoth, wonderful set piece with the yeah. fantastic soaring music. But every time we watch it as a family, you think those little guys have been sitting at the top of that mountain for <laughs> decades waiting <laughs> For this bit, and there's nothing around them at all but yeah. a pile of wood and a and a flaming <laughs> torch. So in a way, that's a pretty rough place to be yeah. on a lighthouse, I think. Mm-hmm. And so if I was, um, I think I would have, if I was going to be a lighthouse keeper, I would be a light a lighthouse keeper in. Um, is it? Am I allowed it to be fantasy? But in Swallows and Amazon, it is kind of fantasy. Kids going yeah. up in boats, but that whole kind of that idea of just being able to go off sailing. Mm. Um, we didn't mean to go to sea. The the jolly ripping adventures with yeah. tea. There's yeah. always going to be tea and jam sandwiches involved. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't seem too dangerous being a lighthouse keeper in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I'd go. Okay, and the the other thing we always ask guests is if they have a fantasy tip, and this could be a writing tip or it could be something to read or watch um, that's helped you in your own journey in writing fantasy. Yeah, um, so I think in terms of a film, so my favourite film of all time is uh, the 2007 film Stardust, uh, made from the Neil Gaiman Yes. it's nothing like Neil Gaiman's book. They're two completely separate entities in my head and you can enjoy them both as separate as separate things. Um, but um, working from the fairy tale inspired story, um, it was always a massive inspiration for me. And just everything about it, I adore, I love how the world looks. I love the relationships between the characters. I love how they've set it in history. Um, and it is just an awful lot of fun as a film when you put it on and you disappear for two hours and the time the time disappears. And that's what I wanted to replicate in books to, to come out at the end of it and be like, wow, that was, that was fun. Like I really enjoyed those sort of moments in that story with those characters on that journey. So that is what I would recommend. That's a, that's a great recommendation. Actually, it made me think of what mine would be on this, which is um, a similar thing where the book and the film are 
miles apart. Mm-hmm. So um, Blade Runner, mm-hmm. the film, mm-hmm. pardon me, and the original short story it's drawn from, which is called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think who wrote that. I should I should know. I want to say Philip K. Dick, but maybe Yes, I'm that not. sounds right. Yeah, that sounds right. Um you've got a younger brain than me. I'm <laughs> thank you for being here. But the, the story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Ship Sheep, is a wonderful story, uh, and funny, really funny. Um kind of it's almost it's more in the hitchhiker guide to the yeah. galaxy feel to yeah. it. Sort of absurd things like people having a premium on having a real animal rather than android. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 very very funny, but the story is the same story as what becomes Blade Runner. So if you're yeah. thinking, how does somebody treat or adapt a work? You can just look at that and think, wow, mm. okay, that's a different way of <laughs> interpreting that story. Mm-hmm. Um, so those two, Stardust and the Neil Gaiman book, and mm. um, the Philip K. Dick. Thank you. Uh, do androids dream of electric sheep? And then watch Blade Runner would be a very, mm-hmm. very interesting little exercise to for sure some ideas. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us, Catherine, and we wish you all the best. So are you um, working on something else now? Have you got some plans going ahead? Um, not at the moment. So the third book in the trilogy came out last November. Okay, so, so I'm currently you're... still yeah. soaking up the joy of having the trilogy out in the world and being able to talk to people about it. So I'm going to give myself yeah. a few months recovery time before I plough into the next idea. On to the next thing, that's right. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast. Brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies, and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.